If you would open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, sorry, chapter 4 now, uh, that is on page 982 in the Blue Pew Bibles. Again, beginning chapter 4 this morning, but before we hear from God's Word, let's ask for His help one last time this morning. Uh, Lord, we do pray that you would teach us, that you would help remind us that we do not know everything about you that there is to know, and there is much about our own hearts that we need to be revealed to us as well. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do these two things. Show us yourself and your glory and your mercy and your grace. Show us our sin where we need to repent where we need to trust in you. We ask all of this in the name of our Savior. Amen. And Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved, I entreat Iodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Church unity is an essential consequence of believing the gospel message. If you're thinking that, yeah, we've heard that before here in the book of Philippians, you would be right. That has been one of the main themes from Paul's opening prayer in chapter 1 till now here in chapter 4. His song that he has been singing, the melodic line running through the book of Philippians, has been of one of joy in the Lord and of oneness among the saints. So there's a real temptation to come to these verses this morning and think, yeah, we've we've heard it all before. There's nothing new for us to learn in this passage. Perhaps we'd be better served by unlocking the mystery of the identity of this true companion that Paul mentions, rather than hearing another sermon on church unity. But I do think there are still things for us to learn from the Apostle Paul. And even if there wasn't, this text that God has given us is what we have before us this morning. So we have to ask ourselves if the constant repetition of the theme of unity isn't something that we ought to take heed of, that the, the, the sheer fact of the repetition is meant to teach us something about the monumental importance, the significance of unity within the church. Think if this instruction that Paul gives were simply about two women having a disagreement, and it had no implications on 
anything else in the life of the church, then Paul probably would have spent more time addressing other things in this letter. But the fact that unity and oneness is a central theme within the book of Philippians tells us that there is much more at stake than a simple relationship between two people. This disunity that is so prevalent in the Philippian church is having a detrimental effect on the mission of the church, on the church's peace, and on the church's testimony of what Jesus has truly done for them. To see, disunity affects much more than we often realize. If we say that the Christian faith is all about undeserved forgiveness and grace and mercy, because the God of the universe humbled himself and came and died the death on a cross, that we might be his people, that we might live like him. That's what we say the gospel message is. And then we respond to that grace with bitterness, with resentment, and with unforgiveness towards one another. We're saying that we don't actually think the gospel is the most important thing in our lives. So getting unity correct is a non-negotiable for the church. And it's a non-negotiable for these two sisters that needed to be reminded of this reality. As we come to this passage, commentators are somewhat divided. Is this the whole point of the letter? This address to Yodia and Syntyche, was this was Paul building up to this all along? Is this sort of the climax of the letter? Is this the purpose for why Paul wrote in the first place? Or has he been dealing with unity more broadly, and then this address to them is somewhat of an afterthought? I'm inclined to lead, lean towards the former, though we, we do see there's other things that Paul needs to address in this letter. So that wasn't his only purpose for writing. But the fact that he ends the section on unity by addressing these two, the fact that he names them by name, which he almost never does in a negative fashion in his letters, tells us this was a very serious matter that Paul wanted to address directly, specifically. But if you've ever fallen into the trap of listening to a sermon or reading your Bible and thinking, you know, I know who really needs to hear this. I really hope so-and-so is listening right now because they, they really need to put this into practice. But the reality is that all of us need to hear this word. All of us need to be instructed. And Paul is doing the same thing. Paul is saying, hey, Yodia, Syntyche, you need to hear what I'm saying. This applies to you too as well. So I don't know all of the relational dynamics that go on within the church. My wife can attest that I'm pretty oblivious to many of them. But as I said last week, I know that when you get enough sinners into a room, there is bound to be 
conflict. There is bound to be relational challenges. And so my challenge to all of us is to listen to these words for ourselves, not with somebody else's ears, but to hear what the Lord has to say to us about our own hearts. And so as we think about how to approach conflict with one another, I want to highlight four ways that Paul tries to approach this conflict between Iodia and Syntyche. The first way that he approaches them is that he leads with love. One more time in this letter, he reminds the Philippian church of their status as his beloved. They're beloved by the Lord. Again, he says that they're citizens of heaven waiting a Savior that's going to transform us to be like him, that they're God's children. They're beloved by him. That's who they are. And they're also beloved by Paul. We can lose the nuance of the language that he uses, but he's actually reminding them of, of all of the heavenly promises that await them together as a body. They're his crown, his reward. That's, that's heavenly language. He, he's looking ahead to when they're all going to arrive together in heaven and he's saying that when we get there, Paul is going to rejoice over these brothers and these sisters that he has ministered to and has helped them arrive safely home. And because he's looking forward with them, he's demonstrating a continued commitment to them. He's not giving them an ultimatum saying, hey, fix your problems or else I'm done. I'm out of here. I'm cutting you off. No, this is a pastoral instruction to his beloved people that he is committed to, to the very end. And think, how much more would it serve us if we entered into hard conversations, being reminded that we are dealing with those who are beloved, that that person across the pew, across the aisle from you, one that sort of raises your hackles when you think about them, that we would remember that that is a brother or a sister that has been adopted into the family of God by their father through the blood of Jesus Christ, that they are beloved children. And that is someone that you will stand side by side with, praising Jesus for all of eternity. How much more would it change the tone of many of our conversations? I think we need to bring that truth to mind for our own sakes and also for the sake of the brother or sister to remind them that you Love them. They're, they're beloved by you as well because they are your brother and sister. That you're for them. That you're committed to them. That, that you want to help them grow in holiness as well. How much more would those hard conversations benefit from that reminder? 
Proverbs 27.5. says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, and profuse are the kisses of an enemy. If you want to have a hard conversation, you start with love from a friend to a brother to a sister. Second, we see that we need to let others in. See, it's tempting in an argument to do one of two things. One, you can retreat to your corner to just stew, uh, to, to just sit in silence and grow in anger. You, you don't let anybody in. You just get bitter until you can't take it anymore. And then finally, you just dump everything onto somebody else. Or you just walk away and break fellowship completely because you just finally, I can't stand that person. It's one way we handle conflict. The other is that we can go and tell anybody you can about all of the ways that you have been wronged, all the reason that the other person is at fault, that you're just an innocent victim in all of this. You go around just building a case to get anybody on your side, hoping that they can validate you, hoping they can validate your anger. And if anybody tries to push back, you, you just reject them. You put up a wall. You can't believe that they would take their side over yours. Thought you were, they were your friend, but now they're turning their back on you. But could it be that a third party, some, somebody else, an objective person might benefit the situation with their objectivity? Could it be their perception is a little less clouded than yours? That your version of the story might not be the most accurate version of the story, and they can help you see where you're at fault, where you need to repent. Again, Proverbs 18, 17, says the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Right? We, we always think we're in the right, they're in the wrong. Letting someone else in might help us see where we might be blind to our own faults. And so we see here that Paul is entering into the fray between these two women with a pastoral exhortation and a reminder to these dear sisters. He's also urging his true companion to help them. Now, we don't know who this companion is. It's likely somebody who was already in Philippi, who was familiar with the situation, who had spent time ministering alongside of Paul. Some commentators think it's Luke, but we don't know. We do know that their identity would have been easily understandable by the Philippians. And so Paul wants him to help. And I think he wants Yodia and Syntyche to know that he wants him to help. That, that they don't put those walls up around themselves and not let this person in. He wants them to not be offended because this true companion is sticking his nose into their business. Paul wants to remind these sisters that he has their good in view as he ministers 
to them, which is why he's asking this true companion to help. So let others in if they're trying to heal broken relationships. Don't push them away. And they're trying to help you strive towards unity. So also a good reminder to bystanders that sometimes our help is required. And this isn't a license for us to run around and be busybodies and gossips. Oh, did you hear what's going on? Can't believe they said this. What what do you think about that? That's it's not what I'm saying. But it is very tempting to often sit on the sidelines when friends are at odds because you don't want to get caught up in the fray. You're worried that you might be getting yourself into something that's going to damage your relationships. Again, what if somebody thinks you're taking the other person's side and now you have a conflict yourself? What if you end up having to carry some of the emotional baggage that comes along with helping? What if you don't have all of the answers and you don't know how to help them move forward? For whatever reasons, we can try to justify sitting back when two friends are in a steep disagreement. This is a helpful reminder from Paul that sometimes we can be the tool that God has graciously provided to mend the hurt between friends. Sometimes we can be the one to help build the bridge to bring brothers and sisters back together. We need to be the one to help in and help mediate an impasse between God's people. It's an encouragement for us as a church when we see conflict among us to let others in, to sometimes be the one to step in. Third, Paul reminds us not to lose the mission. He tells his true companion to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Think, why does Paul include that little biographical detail about these two women? Think, one, he's pointing out the genuineness of their faith, which we're going to return to later in the next point. But he's also reminding everybody that these are not inconsequential people in the church. Not that any of you are inconsequential. It's not what I'm saying. You know, just like I love all of my children equally. I love all of you just as much. So just not saying that. But these women were those who served directly alongside Paul. They had leadership roles within the church. We don't know exactly what those roles were, but they were serving alongside of him. They were significant in the life of the church. They're the ones reaching out to neighbors, discipling other women, teaching the faith to their children, showing hospitality to all. They were probably in the prayer meetings, praying for God to be at work, praying for Paul as he's ministering to others. Imagine, may it never be so, if Sarah and Leandra got into a fight that nobody could solve. 
This church would stop on a dime. See, there's a just a base level, there's a, a practicality to having a church where leaders are working and walking in love and harmony together. So as these two women who once served side by side have broken the relationship, the way the church is functioning is suffering. As we saw in chapter 2, the need for unity, though, extends far beyond just the practical matters about how well your leaders are getting along or who's going to be in charge of the next prayer meeting. We were reminded that the unity of the church, that our, our love for one another, that that unity is a shining light of the evidence of the power of the gospel in a dark and dying world, right? When, when the world sees the way the church can come together to love one another, to be united, that puts the gospel on display. There is no other religion, no club, no organization, no team, no neighborhood association, no government, no institution at all on this planet that can show the same kind of love grace, forgiveness, and kindness as the church when Christians are truly living like our Savior calls us to live and like our Savior himself lived. So when the world sees that love, when the world sees how united the church can be, that bolsters the gospel message that we proclaim. Even if the world's not really sure about the claims of Christianity and the claims of Christ, they cannot deny the power of the gospel at work in our lives. And when the church is at its worst, the world sees the infighting, sees the gossip, sees the bitterness. It hears the message that we proclaim, and it wonders if we even believe what we're saying. You think God treated you with grace and forgiveness, and you're going to treat one another like that? Again, our lives are not what gives the gospel its power, but our lives do adorn, and they do validate our message. So for the sake of the mission of the church, Paul urges these two women to come together because if their fighting continues, that mission will suffer. Lastly, we see that Paul calls Iodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord or to have the same mindset in the Lord. It's a, a command that he has repeated several times throughout this book. And this agreement in the Lord really is the whole of the matter. All that they ultimately need to address their dispute is given to them in the reminder that they are in the Lord. What do I mean by that? How is that sufficient? That little phrase that can often just breeze right past. Paul includes it purposefully. 
So in order to pursue unity together by reminding ourselves that we are in the Lord, it's a few steps that we ought to take. First, we must remember all that we have in Christ and remember the way that he calls us to live. Again, just as we saw, Paul reminds these women, your names are written in the book of life. Think what a promise that is meant to be to them. Think if you're receiving all of the inheritance of heaven, all of the benefits of Christ, then nothing can spoil that reward. And if nothing can spoil it, you are then that much more free to endure a little discomfort here on earth. And so often, we believe the lie that this life is all that we get. So we need to fight like crazy to protect our comfort. And if somebody encroaches upon that, then they need to pay. We can't let that stand. What we need in those moments are better joys that cannot be robbed by those who disagree with us. We have to remember that we are in the Lord. Second, we must remember that our opponents are just as much children of God as we are. They too are his beloved children that he is jealous to protect and care for. They too have been bought by the blood of Christ. They too have been forgiven and they no longer stand condemned by God. But how often do we forget that when we have been wronged by someone else? Someone sins against us. We immediately think that we are saved by works and not by grace. That that person, they've got a whole lot of forgiveness that they need to earn from me. Oh, the church would just remember, not only are we saved by grace individually, but collectively, our brothers and sisters too are saved by grace. We no longer would have to think that you need to pour out your wrath upon one another. Think if the blood of Christ is sufficient to satisfy a just and holy God, then the blood of Christ is sufficient to cover those who sin against you. Just as sufficient. For God is far holier than we are. And he is fully satisfied by the work of his Son on their behalf. We have to remember our opponents are in the Lord as well, forgiven children of our Father. Third, we must remember that we are in the Lord who sees all things clearly. So there's no room for exaggeration and deceit. Think oftentimes when we're recounting events of a dispute, whether it's to yourself, whether it's to others, how tempting is it to twist the truth to fit our narratives, to embellish how awful the other person responded to you? 
to make sure you point out all of the ways that you were in the right, to overlook the ways that you maybe contributed to the argument, to leave out all the other ways that the other person has tried to make amends, to continue to paint a story where we are 100% in the right and they are 100% in the wrong. Now imagine going to the Lord in prayer and giving that exact same recounting. Could you do that in good faith? Could you really stand before the God who sees all and knows all, knows every heart, every motive, every thought, and give that same story? It's humbling, isn't it? To think about bringing these arguments before the throne of God. There's no pretense. There's no hiding. You have to be completely honest, completely free and transparent. When we do that, when we come before the Lord, it forces us to humble ourselves and see things a little more clearly, the way that they are. I think one of the most important steps in actually resolving conflicts is coming to the realization that you too most likely contributed something to make it worse. It's almost never the case that the other person is 100% at fault and you've got nothing to blame, that your hands are completely clean. And so when we go to the Lord in prayer, it forces us to examine ourselves, to repent of our own sin, which then ought to free us to go to our brother or sister and repent to them as well, to be more honest about our contribution. We have to remember that we are in the Lord who sees all things and knows all things. Lastly, we remember what we have in common with one another. That what we have together in Christ far outweighs any differences that we have. Does anybody here been married for a while remember the little disagreements that you had when you first got married? Like, I learned that the toilet paper goes over the roll and not under it. Or you came to the realization of whether or not the cups should be put in the cupboard facing up or upside down. Just little spats that newly married couples can have. Did your marriage make it through those spats? Of course it did. Why? Because those little squabbles, those little disagreements, they paled in comparison of the joy of your new life together as husband and wife. Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 4, says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you all to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. How? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's a lot of what he's already repeated in the book of Philippians. And then why does he tell them that you must walk in a worthy manner? 
Verse 4, because there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Well, Paul is showing the Ephesians that they have everything in common because it's the same Lord that they worship, the same faith that they possess. I think the thing that you love the most, the thing that shapes the core of your identity, the things that drive every decision that you make as a Christian are the same things that that opponent holds most dear as well. We're not united here as a church because we have the same political affiliation or the same hobbies or we like the same music. That is not what unites us. Those are our tertiary things. They are unimportant things. We are united as a church because we have the same faith that changes everything about who we are. And that person that you are disagreeing with possesses that same fundamental faith. You are far more united than you know. So surely, in your disagreements, you ought to be able to grab hold of those commonalities, to thank the Lord for that unity, to celebrate your joint confession together. That ought to help put whatever differences you have into a greater perspective. So often, all of our disagreements, all of our conflicts, this, the problems loom so large in the foreground that it begins to crowd out everything else. It's all we can think about. And we forget everything that is true about our shared faith together. So we have to strive to remember the true unity that we already possess so that we can rightly understand the nature of our divisions, for they are far less than we think they are. Again, I say all of that, not knowing the pains that you may have come here with this morning. I don't know how deep some of the fissures in your life run. But I do know that if you are in the Lord, that if you have held fast to the gospel that we proclaim, that you have everything you need to come to an agreement, to demonstrate the unity that you already possess. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we do thank you that the gospel is not some theory, that's not some formula that we just have to recite, but that it shapes all of who we are. It shapes everything about us. It completely transforms 
our view of ourselves and our view of others. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to cherish this gospel, to know it more deeply, and that it would permeate every relationship that we have in this church, and that we would be a body that clearly, brightly demonstrates the hope that we have in Jesus. Oh, Lord, we thank you. We ask for your help in this, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would make it so. Amen.